Amen. This morning we're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 13. That's the whole chapter. Um, and, and you might be thinking that that, that chapter sounds familiar, uh, and you'd be right. And, and so that's why I want to introduce, introduce it with this. Um, you know how uh, you, you, uh, you might watch an old movie that has like a famous quote in it, and you hear it for the first time. You go, oh, there it is. There's that famous quote right? Uh, and it changes the way that you, you think about it. And I, I brought an example of one that I actually haven't actually exp- had that experience yet, um, and that is uh, Terminator. I've never seen the movie Terminator, but I have heard the famous line, right? I'll be back. Or sorry, I'll be back. Okay? You, yeah, and you've probably had the same thing. If you've never seen it, You've heard the line, whether you've seen it yet. It, 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 you know the line, whether you've seen the movie or not. Uh, but if you haven't seen the movie, like myself, like, you know, we don't know what's the context of this. Like, is he saying it, is it, is it a threat? Right? Is it like, I'll be back and I'm bringing more guns? You know, like, I don't know. It could be. It could, that, that could be ominous in that way. It could just be like reassuring. It could be like, just hold on, I'll be back. I'll save you. Or it could just be like informative, just like, hey, I'm going to the store. I'll be back. Right? We don't know. We don't know. Uh, we have to watch the movie because we can't get anything from his inflection because Arnold just reads lines weird. Right? So there's no, there's no clues there for us. So we don't really know. And, and I bring that up because that's a little bit what our passage today is going to be like. Right, you've heard this passage before. You've heard this passage before. It's quoted all over the place. Um, even by non-Christians, know this passage. It's used in so many weddings, um, where where just even non-believers will just use it because it talks about love and it just seems nice. Uh, and as a result, so often when we get to passages like that in Scripture, we can kind of just skip over them in a way because we already know what it says and it doesn't seem that big. It's like, okay, yeah, I've heard it before. But I want us to make sure that as we read this passage, we root it in the context of the letter. Because as I always say, context is so important when we read Scripture. And in this passage in particular, it needs to be rooted in the context of the whole letter, but acutely in, in the center of chapters 12 through 14. In chapters 12 through 14, Paul is discussing one subject, and this is just a part of that discussion. In chapter 12, he, as we already looked at, he discussed spiritual gifts, that they come from the Holy Spirit. He explained that the church has been given a variety of gifts, that the body of Christ functions much like a human body functions and has different parts that all have different functions, that we should care for one another as if we were parts of the same body. And then as we move into chapter 14 next week, we'll see that it's a lot about the proper use of some gifts like tongues, the benefits of prophecy, uh, what to do during a worship gathering, um, and then even having orderly worship. So chapter 13 is kind of the centerpiece of this discussion because all of it must be done in love. All of it must be done in love. That's a prerequisite. We see this even at the end of chapter 12. If we pick up where we left off last week, 
with verse 31, the end of chapter 12, he tells them, earnestly desire the higher gifts, right? He kind of gives a hierarchy of the gifts and lists the most important, most vital ones first. And he tells them, desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. He's going to tell them, I'm going to show you something that's even more important than any of these gifts. And that's then what we are going to find in chapter 13. So let's dive in now, verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So we'll see here that speaking in tongues is a big part of these of this three chapters. It's kind of the, the main thing that he wants to address with them. But he says here, that's why he says here, whether a person speaks in the tongues of men, meaning different human languages, or if he speaks in the tongue of angels, meaning a spiritual language, they must do so with love. And if not, they're just making noise, much like a cymbal does, right? If you walked over and just started banging on the cymbal, right? If I just started... Anybody enjoying that? Right? No, it can be played, it can be played correctly, but if I'm just banging on it, it's not, it's not very nice to listen to, right? You're not going to listen to just someone banging on a cymbal all day. And that's what he says is if, if you're just speaking and you don't have love behind it, if that's not the motivation, it's just noise. It's just noise. You're just making noise. So he goes on to explain that if a believer could have incredible power and understanding, right? They could have prophetic powers. They could have all the knowledge and understand all of the mysteries of scripture. A believer could even have incredibly strong faith, the kind of faith that Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 11, when he says, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. That's incredible faith, right? Faith, and, and, and Jesus just says it only takes a little bit of faith because it's mostly about what God does, not about our faith. But we can have incredibly strong faith, but if we don't have love, it's nothing. It doesn't matter how impressive someone's gifts are. If they don't have love, it is meaningless. Paul even addresses generosity and sacrifice, right? He says a believer could give away all that they have. A believer could sacrifice their very lives, lay down their lives, die for someone else. But if they don't do it with love, they will not gain anything. It's meaningless without love. And that's a a humbling and, and maybe even scary thought that our actions don't necessarily mean anything. Because a lot of us go, hey, I can, I can check some boxes, man. I can get this thing done. What do, you, what do you need? What do we need done? What needs to get done? Let me check them off. 
And maybe I'm just going to be angry the whole time, but I'll get it done. I'll get it done. I, mean, I, I can do it. I'm a doer and I can do it. I can make it happen. I can do all the right things. But Paul says, if your heart isn't right, if it's not coming from a place of love, it's meaningless. It doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter how much you sacrifice. It doesn't matter what kind of powers you have. If it isn't love, it's meaningless because God sees the heart. We see this illustrated when Samuel is called to anoint Israel's next king in 1 Samuel 16, 7. Yahweh said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. So if the key to effectiveness, if the key to meaningful action, if the key to everything we do is love, then we better ask ourselves, what is love? And that's what Paul addresses next here in verses 4 through 10. Now, before I read this, because I know, I know what's going to happen, I'm going to start reading this passage, and you're all going to have flashbacks to a wedding, Okay? And just go, oh, yes, isn't love great? Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, yes, love is patient and kind. And, you know, and, and that's not what we're doing here. Okay? So as I read this and then as we discuss this, I want you to be thinking about and processing which of these things and asking the Holy Spirit to convict you of which of these areas are you the worst at. Right? Which of these areas do you need to grow in? Which of these areas and aspects of love are you lacking the most? Okay, To really think about it and not just allow it to kind of run over and just think about, oh, how great love is. But how do I need to change and become more like Jesus? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So first off, love is patient and kind. When we think about love being patient and kind, we can consider, okay, when is it easy for me to be patient and kind? When are, what are the things that cause me to actually have those, those realities about me? And it's when we see people individually and specifically and care about them. Right? You think about the fact that the, the very young and the very old move slowly. Right? You have to be patient with them. Why are you willing to be patient with some people? It's those you care about. It's those that you love. You see them as individuals. You see them as people. And kindness also requires a recognition that people have different needs. We talked about this last week in chapter 12, that each individual is unique they have different pasts, they have different abilities, they have different desires, different needs. When we see someone as a human being deserving of care, 
we treat them with kindness. I'll give you a flip side example of this, of when you are least likely to be patient and kind, uh, and that is when you're in the car experiencing road rage, right? And, and I know there, there's lots of people, lots of believers even, who struggle with road rage because it, it's easy to dehumanize the people in the cars, right? When, when you're driving and someone cuts you off or does something stupid um, and, and you go, oh, come on, what are you doing? Get off the road, right? You're, in your mind, you're not going like, oh, that's a person in that car. Like, that's a person who might be like, confused or tired or scared like they you don't know what maybe they just don't even know what they're doing right and they are literally like going i don't know what i don't know what any of this is i don't know what's going on right that like that could be the reality but in your mind they're just a demon right who's just like i'll show this person <laughs> do you like that <laughs> right and so you just automatically turn them into this evil person who is out just to get you. Well, most of the time, they don't, they don't even know what they did. right? And that's the difference. And, and, and you know that's a difference because if you were just walking on the street, if you're just walking on a busy sidewalk, right, and someone like walked in front of you or something like that, you're not going to start yelling at them. Right? You're not going to go, what are you doing, you psycho? Get out of the way! Or maybe... A couple of you would. There were different people in first service. No. No, but you're not going to do it because you see that they're a human being, right? You see that they're a human being. And that's, that's really the reality of when love comes out, we are patient and kind with people. He also says that love does not envy or boast, right? And when we think about envy and boasting, they're really two sides of the same coin, right? Because envy is wanting something that someone else has. Right? Boasting is bragging about having what others do not have. And love doesn't entertain either of these ideas. Right? Because love, if you love someone, then you want good for them, and you're happy when they have good things that you don't have. Right? If you love someone and they get something, even if you wish you had it, you're still happy for them. Or you want them to have good things. In the same way, if you love someone, you want good for them, and you don't want to boast about having what they lack because you know it will make them feel bad. Or you don't want to brag about it. You don't want to boast about it because you care about them as a human being. Love is also not arrogant or rude, right? And arrogance and rudeness also go hand in hand. Arrogance is thinking too highly of yourself, thinking you're better than other people. And if you love someone, you're not arrogant with them. But arrogance leads to rudeness, right? We're rude with people that we don't think deserve our respect. And if you love someone, you will not be rude with them. Love does not insist on its own way, right? When we love someone, we value their ideas and their opinions. We value their input. We want to even try something new, to see their perspective and try something new. Love is not irritable or resentful, right? And this doesn't mean that we never get irritated with people that we love. Certainly, it's, I would, I would argue, maybe not possible to live with someone and not get irritated with them once in a while. But it's the question of this natural state, right? Are, is your state irritable, 
right? Are you initially looking for things to be irritated with? Are you trying to find things to be irritated with? Is it your default? Right? We're also not resentful with those that we love. And not being resentful requires us to uh, apologize and forgive regularly, right? Because resentment builds when we don't resolve those conflicts, right? Resentment comes when we're storing those things up, right? When we're going like, oh, I did not like that, and that was not okay, and they're, they're, they did wrong. They hurt me, but I'm not going to tell them. I'm just going to save that for later, right? I'm just going to store that up, and, and then you'll know if that's how you're feeling. If you're feeling resentful towards someone, then when you do actually get to arguing with them, you start throwing things out like that start sentences that start with you always or you never. You know what I mean? Right? Where you go, you never do this. You never help me out. You never do that. Or you always do this. Every time we're in this situation, you always do this. Because you just throw these big generalizations out because again, you've been stockpiling all this ammo and now you're resentful. And now you're going to assume the worst and you're going to, you've got too much there to resolve. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Right? It might seem obvious that love would not rejoice at wrongdoing, but I think the surprising thing here is what Paul contrasts it with. Right? He doesn't say love does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with good. Right? He says, love not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. He contrasts wrongdoing with the truth. And he does that intentionally, I believe, because the truth is sometimes hard. Right? The truth is sometimes difficult. Sometimes it's painful. But when we love someone, we're truthful with them, even when it hurts. Love also bears all things. Right? When, when we love someone, we bear their burdens. We're willing to bear their We're not going to just pass them by. We're not going to go, that's tough for you, but I'm living my life over here. No, I'm going to come alongside and bear your burdens with you. I'm going to care about the things that are happening to you and try to bear some of that burden. Love also believes all things. Now, that, that's one that you might hear and you go like, well, wait a minute, I'm not going to be a gullible fool. What are you talking about? Believes all things? What do you mean? What Paul means here is not that we just believe everything, because obviously he just previously said love rejoices with the truth, right? So he doesn't say just believe any old thing. He wants us to be living in the truth. But this really comes down to how, again, our default is with someone. That a lot of our conflicts come down to believing the worst about another person's motives. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to mediate a conflict between people, and the, the biggest problem that they have is they just assume the worst about the other person. Just a few weeks ago, I was trying to mediate a conflict between these two people, and and one of them got the other one a gift in the middle of their having this conflict. And the response of the person receiving the gift was like, yeah, but why'd they get that for? What are they, what are they up to? What are they trying to do? I said, I think they're just, God, I think they're just trying to offer you something good and like get your gift. No, no, they're up to something. 
there's something else going on. They got some other motive behind this. I don't know what they're doing, but they're, something is not right. right? And, it, and it wasn't. The other person was just purely trying to like put out an olive branch, try to extend something there. <coughs> but they got in this motive where they just believed the worst about the other person. Love also hopes all things. Right? When we love someone, we hope for the best. Hope requires faith. It requires hope that we want what's going to want what's best, and hope that that will happen. Love endures all things. Right? When we love someone, we endure. We endure the hard times that come from external sources. Right there are sometimes things that in our relationships that from outside are going to affect us, but we can endure those things together. But love also endures internal conflict, right? Conflict that comes from the relationship itself. Hard times can come from out, without, or from within. And ultimately, love never ends. But before we dive into that, I want to remind you that as we think about this idea of, of love enduring all things, and really all of this, I think, again, as when we talk about love, and especially when we talk about relational conflict, most of the time we think in terms of within a family and usually even just within a marriage. But Paul's not talking about marriage at all in this passage. He's not talking about family relationships at all in this passage. It's applicable, right, because there is love there as well, but what he's talking about is love within the body of Christ, He's talking about bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things within the body of Christ, between us. How we deal with one another, do we have this kind of love that will endure, that will bear burdens together? That's what he's talking about here. And that kind of love will never end. Again, he's discussing our use of spiritual gifts, how we serve within the body of Christ. And his point here is, in the end, these gifts will be meaningless, right? Whatever we do will be meaningless in the end. There will be nothing left to prophesy. There will be no need for tongues because everyone will be able to understand each other. There will be no knowledge that will be special because everyone will possess it. He says that this will happen when the perfect comes. The partial will be put away. This refers to the restoration that will occur at the second coming of Christ, that Jesus will come back and make all things new, bring perfection over the entire world and over ourselves as well. And at that point, none of these gifts will mean anything, but love will remain. We'll look lastly at verses 11 through 13. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So Paul compares the present age to childhood, right? He's when he's talking about this, he's, he's referring to childhood, but he's talking about the fact that the present age that we live in, and you go, well, Paul was writing a long time ago, he's still talking about the same age. He's talking about the time from Christ's ascension to Christ's second coming. That's the present age that we live in. And he's saying 
Just as the things of childhood are temporary, so this is temporary. Right? When we become adults, we mature and we no longer do these things. And he uses a couple examples here. He uses speech, right? Young children are still developing their speech. They have trouble making the correct sounds and using proper grammar. I don't know the last time you've talked to like a three or four-year-old. My daughter just turned four. Um, and, and sometimes when she talks to us, you have to like put, it's like she's just giving you all the puzzle pieces of the sentence she wanted to say. And you have to like rearrange it and change the like verbs and nouns to like match and, and try to go, oh, I, I hear what you're trying to say now. Right? And that's what he's saying. When he's a child, he spoke like a child. He also uses thought. He says that, that he thought like a child. And we know now that the human brain does not finish developing until you turn 25. Car companies understand, uh, car rental companies understand this. This is why you can't rent a car until you're 25. Because the car rental companies go, let's go ahead and let that finish cooking before I hand you keys. He also refers to reasoning, right? Reasoned like a child. Children are often very illogical. Now, why did he use these examples? He's intentionally using these examples of human development to compare them to the spiritual gifts that he's discussing. Right? Notice he uses speech, which is directly related to the use of tongues. He uses Thought, which is directly related to knowledge, and he uses reasoning, which is directly related to prophecy. And when Christ returns, these gifts will not be significant because they will be common to all people. Right? There'll be no use for tongues because everyone will understand everyone. The fact that we have different languages and the fact that people can't understand each other is a result of the fall. It happened in it's, a, it's a, a later event, but the Tower of Babel is when language was confused in Genesis chapter 11. God's original design is that everyone should understand everyone. There'll be no need for knowledge because everyone will know everything. There'll be no special knowledge that other people don't possess. And there'll be no need for prophecy because there'll be nothing left to resolve or correct. When we talk about prophecy, we talk about two aspects of prophecy. The first is that is what you typically think of when you hear the word prophecy, which is foretelling, right? That's where you see examples in the Old Testament where something is written about and then later Jesus fulfills it. That's that kind of foretelling prophecy. It's saying, here's what's going to happen in the future, usually in kind of a coded way. Here's what's going to happen in the future. But prophecy also includes foretelling, which is speaking truth to culture. And actually, there's a lot more forthtelling in the Old Testament than there is foretelling. A lot, lot more of prophets going to, to, to the nation of Israel and going, here's what you're doing and here's what needs to be corrected. Here's how it needs to change. That's that forthtelling prophecy, speaking truth to culture. But again, there'll be nothing left to predict and there'll be nothing left to correct. So prophecy will also not be useful anymore. Paul compares this to looking into a foggy mirror, right? a, a dim mirror. We think of the mirror like after you get out of the shower and it's all steamed up and you can't really, you can see your shape, but you can't like actually make out your features or know if you can't like comb your hair or do anything of that because you can't see clearly enough. 
Even those with the greatest gifts are nothing compared to what everyone will receive in the end. We might think about this, again, Paul's talking about childhood a lot here. We might think about it, and this is what came, this is what came to my mind, is that, um, you know, I don't know how long it's been since you guys have gone to a t-ball game, um, but it's rough. It's, it's, it is t-ball, it is not baseball, right? It's not baseball. That they hit the ball, and like half the time they run the wrong way, they run down the third baseline instead of the first baseline, like... You know, they're, they're, it can be slowly rolling to them and they still miss it, right? Those kind of things. Like, they, they can barely throw the ball, those kind of things. Like, it, it's pretty rough, right? So you could have a little, but you could have a kid on the t-ball team who's the best, right? You're going to have one of them that's the best. He's got the best swing. He's got the best throw. He can catch the ball. Pretty basic things. He knows which way to run around the bases. Pretty basic stuff. But he could be the best one. But if you're going to compare him to, to even the worst player in Major League Baseball, that'd be pretty silly, right? For that kid to go bragging, like, hey, I'm the best t-ball player out here, buddy. Right? No, that, you're still nothing compared to what is to come. That's what kind of difference that Paul's talking about here. He's saying, we can have the, the best gifts here. We can be the best at all these things, but we're still nothing compared to what will be revealed when Christ returns. In the end, we will know fully, even as we are fully known. And we should pause and recognize the incredible privilege of being known by God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talked about this previously, where he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Marvel at the fact that the God of the universe knows and loves you and knows and loves you enough to send his son, Jesus, to die for you. That you might, he might reconcile you to himself. Paul concludes that, that what will remain, remain, what will abide is faith, hope, and love. These will remain to the end. But the greatest of them is love because it will remain in a different way. Right? Faith, hope, and love are all things that are accessible to all believers. They're available to all believers. We can all have them. But love will remain in the end in a different way than even faith and hope. As we see Paul discuss in these other letters in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about faith where he says, We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Right? He talks about there that we walk by faith and not by sight when we are away from the Lord, but in the end we will be with him and it will no longer be faith because we'll be walking by sight. He says something similar about hope in Romans chapter 8, 24 through 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Faith and hope, will, while they will remain, they will in a sense be fulfilled in the end. Love will last forever because love is God's essential nature, as we see in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I'll wrap up with this, three takeaways for today's message. Number one, recognize the prerequisite nature of love, right? That love is the default. It's where we have to start from with anything we're going to do. If we're not doing it with love, it's meaningless. Number two, consider which element of love in verses four through 10 you most need to grow in. What is the thing that when you read it, you went, oh man, now that, that part's tough for me. Or whether it's patience, whether it's bearing all things, whatever it is that, that jumped out at you the most where you go, yeah, that's the element that I need to, to grow in the most. And then pray that the Holy Spirit would work in you. Because it's not that we grow on our own. It is always by grace, always by him that we grow in these things. Then lastly, long for Christ's return when everything will be perfected. As an important element of our faith that we long for Jesus' return. We wait for it with anticipation. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and then we'll take uh, communion together. Um, we'll sing one final song, and then after that, there'll be a prayer team available or whatever here if you'd like prayer for anything. They would love to pray for you. Would you bow with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Um, this morning. I thank you for your word that even as we read a familiar passage, you can speak to us in a fresh way, that you can uh, convict us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would continue to grow in love. I pray these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.